I seriously doubt that there is a person on the planet who likes to be told that they can't do something. I know it's true in the U.S. This, this nation is built on I can. It's embedded in the DNA of our culture. It gets passed on from generation to generation. If my son Wit was sitting in here this morning and I said to Wit, he's six. Wit, you can't get up here and jump off this platform. No way you can do it. It's impossible. What would my son Wit immediately get up here and do? Right? Jump off the platform. I'll show you I can. Forget that. If Lloyd was in here, I said, Lloyd, you can't stand up here on this platform and I'll show you I can jump farther than Wit. He'd be up here in a second, right? We, we love to believe that we can. I've seen a hundred commercials already on the Olympics, yet to see one about the athlete who couldn't. I haven't seen that commercial. Isn't out there. No, we are so excited about the Olympics at our house. Starts Thursday, right? I, I, we are pumped. I came home one night this last week and our living room had been transformed into a month-long watch party. Medals hanging on the lights, couches all turned toward the TV. We, we, we love the Olympics. Why? Because we love to watch the ones who can. We, we love to watch the ones who can do something better than anybody else. We, we love to celebrate them, the ones who made the Olympics, the ones who win gold medals, the ones who set world records, the ones who, who, who play or compete for our country. We love the ones who can. When, when I was growing up, when I was a little boy, my favorite book as a little, little boy was The Little Engine That Could. The Little Engine That Could, not The Little Engine That Couldn't. That book wouldn't sell two copies, right? I, I, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. But the little engine couldn't. The end. No, that book wouldn't go anywhere. Nobody would buy that book. See, we love to believe that we can. We do. We love it. We love to believe that we're capable. Can't stand to think that we can't. In fact, we despise that notion. Well, not surprisingly, when we open our text for today, Jesus has an encounter with a man that turns that very notion on its head. It's an encounter with a, a rich ruler. And he tells this rich ruler that what he wants to do, he can't do. In fact, he tells the ruler, it's impossible and the ruler walks away sad, grieved. He's devastated by the news that he can't, and it's impossible. But the narrative account doesn't end there. It's a story about a rich young ruler, but the disciples are the ones who get the lesson. And I believe this, if we'll watch how they respond to Jesus as he encounters this man, if we'll watch their response, the light will come on for us. And we'll find that you can't, and it's impossible, are actually some of the greatest words that Jesus ever uttered. So take out your Bible and open to Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, verse 18. I'm going to take you through the text, and I'm just going to stop along the way, make some observations, and then we'll see if we can make some sense of it for our own lives as we get to the end. Okay, so pick it up. Chapter 18, verse 18. We're just going to look at the first verse. I'm going to make some comments, then we'll go on. Here it is. A ruler questioned him, questioned Jesus, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This man was a civic leader. 
He had significant authority and responsibility in the community. We know from the parallel accounts of this same encounter in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark that he was young and that he was rich. In fact, Mark, I mean Luke, even in our text, will mention that same thing later. So we know this story to be the story of the rich young ruler. And his question is a good one. It's a sincere question. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what must I do? And we, we see in his question that this man is very focused on doing. He's a leader in the community. He's wealthy in the community. He's respected in the community. And he's respected in the community because he is a good doer. We've studied this throughout Luke. He is, in fact, a good law keeper. He's been righteous. He's been obedient before God. Well, we could say it this way, as it relates to his relationship with God, he's concerned about his side of the ledger. Does my side of the ledger, what I'm doing, does it measure up? Does it meet God's standard? And even though I have kept the law, even though I've tried to be obedient, Jesus, is there anything else I can do to be saved? Now, when he says this phrase, inherit eternal life, I just want you to know, because this is coming in the text, there, there are four phrases that are used interchangeably that all refer to the same thing. They all refer to this question, how is a person saved? They all refer to salvation. So he uses inherit eternal life. Jesus will use treasure in heaven. Jesus will also use enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples will say at the end, be saved. All four referring to the same thing, salvation. He asked a good question. We learn a good deal about the man in his question. And then the last thing I just want you to notice in the first verse is his greeting. He says to Jesus, good teacher, which Jesus responds to immediately in the next section. So look at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. The ruler said to Jesus, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, when the ruler calls Jesus good teacher, he, he's saying less about the goodness of Jesus and, and it's more about making a flattering remark to Jesus. So, so it's a greeting that expects a response, right? In the oriental world, especially in the first century, when someone paid another a compliment, what was expected was a compliment in return. So, so he says to Jesus, good teacher, expecting from Jesus something like noble ruler. And so when Jesus breaks cultural tradition, which he often does, doesn't respond to the man, hey, noble ruler. No, he doesn't do that. He actually calls the man's bluff. We see Jesus inviting him to consider the statement that he just made. That Jesus says to him, are you calling me good? Word there means righteous. Are you calling me righteous? Because only God is righteous. Implied, do you really know who I am? See, not de denying his divinity, he, he is inviting the man to consider who he really is. Are you, in fact, calling me good? And as usual, Jesus sees right past his words, right past his greeting, and begins peering deeply into this man's heart. He answers his question. Uh, uh, 
what do I do to, to inherit eternal life? Are you really calling me good? You know the answer to the question. The answer to the question is, have you kept the commandments? You keep the law perfectly and you will answer your own question. To which the ruler responds, and this is astounding, no problem. I've kept the law my whole life. What? How can the ruler say that? How can the ruler say he's been righteous his whole life? Well, he can say that because he's focused entirely on what? Outward righteousness, entirely on his doing, external actions. He he can say that because he has literally not murdered anybody. He's not committed adultery. He's not stolen anything. But he has no concept whatsoever of an internal righteousness that would match his outside exterior doing. No concept of that. He has no concept of of inward unrighteousness that, that you and I could actually be unrighteous in our thoughts, in our motivations, in our attitudes. Those two things do not compute for this guy. He has no concept, no idea that that each commandment stands for a whole category of behavior. Sixth commandment, do not commit adultery. It, It stands for a whole category of behavior related to sexual misconduct. What does Jesus say when he gives the law? He talks about the law. He says, he says, even if you think something you shouldn't, look at something you shouldn't, you've broken the sixth commandment. Seventh commandment, do not murder. Not just not take out a gun. No, that's not just it. It's when you have hate in your heart, that's a murderous thought and that breaks the law. You see, Jesus could have blown this guy out of the water right here. You're telling me that you've never stretched the truth ever. Telling me that you've never had an inappropriate thought. Jesus could have looked at him and said, you've shattered the 10 commandments, but Jesus doesn't do it. He doesn't. In fact, he moves right past it. And he moves right past it because when he heard the man answer, he knew he didn't get it. And so Jesus moves past his answer onto the one thing that he knew would most expose the core of the man's heart. The one thing the man trusted in more than God. Look at verse 22 and we'll see what he trusted in more than God. When Jesus heard him, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Here it is. Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, stop right there. Question. Is Jesus saying to be saved, we have to sell all that we possess and distribute it to the poor? Is that what Jesus is saying? It it looks that way in the text. One thing you lack, young man, one thing. Give everything you have then you will get heaven. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what it takes? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. You see, for the rich young ruler, the answer to that question is yes. But it's important for you and I to remember that Jesus is speaking specifically to the rich young ruler. 
This is a real account, real narrative account actually happened on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus and this man have this interchange and he looks at him and he says, your issue, your specific issue is that, you're, is, is that there is something that you trust in, you've placed your trust in to save you and you've placed that trust in it more than you've placed your trust in God. What is that one thing? Well, it seems on the surface that it's wealth and that is a part of it, but his wealth is actually only an illustration of it. It's only a symbol of it. Here's what I mean. In the first century, and we've said this along the way in the Gospel of Luke, but in the first century, the person who was rich in the community was deemed the most righteous in the community. In other words, he was rich because God had given him divine favor. God had blessed this man or woman because of this man or woman's righteousness, which makes perfect sense to what we know about this man in the text. He was doing for the sake of being righteous. Everyone around him believed that he was righteous. Because he was righteous, God had blessed him with wealth. So what the issue is here is that he is trusting in actually his own righteousness illustrated by his lavish wealth. So Jesus says to the man, get rid of all you possess, stop trusting in your own righteousness and place your trust in me. That's what you lack. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus actually knows his issue before he knows his issue. Jesus knows that he placed his trust in his wealth, his affluence, and his righteousness at the core. He knows he's placed his trust in that before the text even tells us that he's rich. That doesn't happen until the next verse. Jesus knows his issue before he knows his issue, and he identifies the man's issue for him. And I'll just say this, just step out for a second to say this to all of us, even those of us who already know Christ, believers and non-believers alike. Jesus knows our issues. He knows our issue before we know our issue. He knows our tendency to place our trust in ourselves, the things of this world. He knows the thing that stands in the way of us placing our trust in him. For, for you and I, it may, be, it may be wealth, the security that comes from affluence. It it may be self-righteousness. Lots of us place our trust in that. It may be other things, power, influence. That's that's where my trust is. I'm known as a powerful person. I have fame. It may be that that position or status in our role at work or in our role at home or our role somewhere else. It may be that that's the thing that we place our trust, our confidence in, our dependence upon. It could be an addiction. It could be keeping a good name in the community, maintaining what people think of me. I'll tell you what it is for me. It's just simple self-reliance. That's what I tend to put my trust in myself. Self-sufficiency. Like, I don't, I don't want anybody to, to help me with anything. I, I don't want to need anything from anybody. I don't want to have to ask anybody for anything. I, I want to prove that I can do it, that I'm able. I, I'm just going to tell you, that's, that's a subtle form of idolatry. Why? Because when I place my trust in myself, my dependence on me, my hope and confidence in my ability to fix it or to change it or to control it or to manipulate it, I'm not placing my trust in Jesus Christ. I'm pretending like I don't need a savior. That's subtle, self-reliant idolatry, and it stands in the way of my trusting him. 
It's true for the believer in our followership, in our discipleship. We have things that we trust that stand in the way. And it's certainly true for the non-believer like the rich man, those who don't know Christ, who have things that they place their trust in for salvation, who are in fact maybe good, but not saved. Can I just say this right here about grace? God's grace in our lives is that he knows our issue. He knows our issue before we know our issue. He knows what stands in the way of our following Jesus. He knows. He's willing to identify it. He's willing to name it. No one, no one on the planet likes being called a liar. No one. No one likes being called a fornicator. No no one likes being called selfish. But please hear me on this. That's God's grace. How, How is that God's grace? Only when he shows us the things that we trust in. Only when he shows us the things that stand in our way. Only when he shows us our own righteousness. Only then can we be granted and given and understand the opportunity that we have to be saved from it. Only then. Jesus tells the rich young ruler what his issue is, what stands in his way, not so he won't follow him, but so that he will follow him. Not so that the man will be condemned in his sin and his righteousness. No, Jesus came to what? He came to save the man. And he's answering the very question that the man wanted him to answer. Now, I want to make one comment about verses 24 and 25 before we go on because this is a very important link in the text. Jesus makes a statement here about the rich and he says this. He says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's a proverbial statement. It's like a little bitty short parable. Everybody who was listening would have understood the statement. They knew what a camel was, that it was very large. They knew what a sewing needle was. They knew it was very small. And so Jesus is simply asking the audience and this man the question, can, can a camel go through an eye of a needle? And the answer to that is no, it's impossible. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making about the rich. Hear me on this. It's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Impossible. Can't do it. Not possible. Disciples look at him and go, what? What are you talking about? Impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Look at what they say in verse 26. Then who can be saved? They that heard it, that's the disciples. Then who can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, then nobody can be saved. Why? Because in the first century, the rich are the who? The righteous, the most righteous. If the most righteous can't be saved, then there's no hope, no chance for those who are less righteous. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, exactly, finally, somebody gets it. It's impossible to be righteous on the basis of our own righteousness. Impossible to obtain a righteousness that satisfies God. How do we get to the kingdom of God? You can't. Impossible. How are we saved? You cannot do it. It's absolutely impossible. You want to talk about sobering. You want to talk about hopeless. 
Talk about sad. Here's the rich man, the most righteous guy in the city, literally the most righteous guy in the city who comes to Jesus. He's kept all the commandments. He's kept the law. He's been obedient to God. He's asking Jesus, is there anything more I can do? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you're so far from righteous, you can't even see it. And because you can't be righteous, you can't be saved. We don't like to be told we can't. We don't like to be told it's impossible. But I would just simply suggest to you that this is one place where those two phrases are some of the greatest words that we could ever hear. Why? Look at verse 27, the last verse in our text. Jesus said to them, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. What's the progression in the text? Well, it's simply this. Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom of God? You got to be righteous. Be righteous, you got to keep the law perfectly. Problem with that Only God is good. Only God is righteous. Therefore, no matter how well we keep the law, no matter how well we perform and obey God, we cannot be saved. It is impossible, which leaves just one other option. What is that option? It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What's impossible with people is possible with God. The rich young ruler called him good, not knowing what he was saying, but good because he was in fact perfectly righteous. He was the son of God. That's our only option. If righteousness is required and we're not able to be righteous, only way we can be saved is through the righteousness of another. Theologians call it alien righteousness. Why? Because it's alien to us. It's foreign to us. We cannot possess it on our own. We cannot do anything to allow us to possess it. It comes from outside of us, comes from another who, the one who is good, the one who is perfectly righteous, the one who paid the penalty for our unrighteousness. It comes from the person of Jesus Christ and it's the only righteousness that will satisfy a just God. You see, you and I have to come to grips with the reality that we cannot save ourselves have to come to grips with that. And I know I can say that. I know we can think it intellectually. I know we can get that cognitively, but we got to believe it. We got to know that's true in our hearts and we got to stop striving to try to gain it on our own. We we have to come to grips with the reality of that. Got to come to grips with the reality that, that we have this delusion that what we do has something to do with our access to the kingdom of God. Nothing to do with our access to the kingdom of God. Got to come to grips with the reality that there is nothing in this world that can save us. Rich man walks away sad. Why? Because he's trusting in his affluence and his self-righteousness to save him. That will never, ever save him. Will it provide him comfort and security in the here and now? Yeah, it will. It does. He was respected in the community. Will it save him? No, never. It will never, ever save him. None of our idols will. They won't save us. You can't and it's impossible are some of the greatest words Jesus could ever speak because until we know we can't, until we know it's impossible to be righteous, then we can't embrace grace. What's grace? It's God knowing what we need before we know we need it. 
And how do we know that we need grace unless there is a standard that we cannot measure up to? Unless we cannot measure up to a standard, there's a standard that we cannot meet. That, that's the purpose of the law. It's the standard we can't meet. The law, the Ten Commandments, all that God gave in the Old Testament was not so that we might be saved by keeping the law. It was to show us that we needed a Savior. You see, if we disobey the law, then we are an unrighteous sinner. We all get that. We disobey the law. But if we obey the law, then we are what? A self-righteous, prideful sinner. Either way, we cannot win. No matter what we do, we are doomed. Even the rich young ruler knew that. He came asking, what more should I do? And he believed that he had kept the law perfectly. So the question for you and I is, how do we get the righteousness of Jesus? How do we get alien righteousness applied to our side of the ledger? Well, Jesus answers that question too. He says, you get the righteousness that you need from me by receiving it like a child. Look at verse 17, last verse from the previous section, the one that precedes this section. Jesus says, truly, by the way, anytime Jesus says truly, just mark it, circle it, highlight it in your Bible. It's the most important thing in that section. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not receive the kingdom of God at all will not enter it at all. The only way to enter the kingdom of God is through the righteousness of another, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How? By receiving it like a child. Why the picture of a child? Why in the world would Jesus give us the picture of of a baby or an infant? It's a very young child. Why would he do that? Because a child can't do anything for themselves helplessly dependent on another, helplessly dependent on the provision of a parent, provider, guardian, helplessly dependent on someone else. A parent provides food for the child, bathes the child, puts the child to bed, changes the child's diaper. What does the child do? Accepts what's given, just receives what's given. A child places trust and confidence in the provider that doesn't know any better. Trust in the provider to know what his or her needs are and to meet his or her needs. Do, do you see the contrast in the text? The contrast between this helplessly dependent child and this self-reliant, self-sufficient young ruler who wants to know what he can do. Jesus says nothing you can do. Have to receive it with the helpless dependence of a child. The picture in the text is beautiful. Section before, you may remember this from last week, children are coming to Jesus. Disciples don't want them to come to Jesus. Jesus says, let them come. They just come. They're playing all around Jesus. They're crawling up in his lap, just receiving whatever he has to offer them. A word, a touch, a hug, a pat. They're just all over him, just dependent upon him, coming to him, receiving whatever he has to offer. It's a powerful, powerful, beautiful, gorgeous picture of salvation. And what's interesting about the picture in the text is that the rich young ruler was there for all of it. He saw it. Watched the children come to Jesus. Heard Jesus say, truly I say to you, 
None will enter the kingdom of God. Lest they come like these children are coming to me right now. He heard all that. In fact, that's the context where he asked this question. Well, then Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And that's where he misses it all together. He just misses it absolutely entirely. Jesus looks at him. One thing you lack, it's illustrated by your wealth. You lack righteousness. And there's one thing you need. The one thing you need is the righteousness of another. And the only way you get it is by receiving it just like these children. We always ask the question, so what? What do we do with this text? What do you, how do we take it and apply it into our own lives today? And I'll just simply say this. The question is begging. It's just begging. Will you receive the kingdom of God? Will you receive it? Will you receive it with the helpless dependence of the child? Will you place your faith in Christ and Christ alone for your own salvation? What's impossible with people? It's impossible on the basis of our own righteousness. What's impossible uh, to save us? There's nothing in this world that can save us. It's impossible to find it on this planet earth. What's impossible for people is possible with God. How? Through the person of Jesus Christ. It's the free gift of salvation for all who will simply, what? Receive it. That's it. And what's true for anybody in here that may not know Christ is that there's something that they've placed their trust in that stands in the way of them trusting in Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us just to go, you know what? Let go of that and receive me. Receive the forgiveness that I offer. Place your trust in me. What's true for those that don't know Christ is true for those of us who do. There are things that stand in the way. It doesn't keep us from salvation. We've already trusted in Christ. But things that stand in our way from our fully devoted followership of him. And so for both groups, I'm going to pray. And if you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to believe. It's as clear in this text as it is anywhere in the scripture. To receive Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And I'm going to pray to that end just invite you as I pray to make my words your own. And then I'm gonna pray for the believer as well, that you and I might understand what it looks like to trust Christ, to let go of the things that we put in our way and to trust him more fully each day with who he has promised to be. So would you join me as I pray and then I'll send this out.